Psalm 182, uh, excuse me, Psalm 128. Y'all are going to have me treated for dyslexia in a second here. Psalm 128, a song of degrees. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by thy, thy, the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants around about thy table. Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children, and peace upon Israel. What is it that you most fear? What nightmare wakes you up in a cold sweat? For me, it's a nightmare that I am back in school and I have forgotten an assignment. And if you spend as many hours as I have in school, you might understand why it is that this is my common fear. Oddly enough, one of the things that most people in the Western world fear is public speaking. I seem to have defeated that one except for my dyslexia, which, you know, we'll, we'll talk to later about. In modern times, though, the thing that people fear most oftentimes is a forcible change uh, to their standard of living. As we are in election year, we often hear the old adage that people vote their wallets. We blame or credit incumbents for our economic condition regardless of their responsibility. And in times when we live where we look at what is going on in the economy and wonder whether we will experience a change in our standard of living. In this fear, we come to the psalm and find a curious a correlation for our standard of living seems to pose a direct possess a direct relationship with what we fear and yet God has elected uh, those to who he has given the fear of him also the ability to enjoy uh, these things this is a psalm of confidence and thanksgiving and a, an expression of the blessedness of God's people as they enjoy the fruits of their labor the fruits of their home and the fruits of their lives, the fruits of their labor, the fruits of their home and the fruits of their lives. As the psalmist begins this what seems to be a wisdom psalm, he states the condition upon which blessedness is conditioned. It's a wisdom psalm because uh, often this uh, condition is found in wisdom literature. What does it take to be happy? And while modern man searches for the answer in every area imaginable, the Creator describes clearly where happiness is to be found. The psalmist notes that happiness comes through the fear of the Lord. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. The psalmist notes that also other so-called avenues of happiness lead only to the futility of man. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. The Proverbs teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Some have defined fear as reverence that leads to obedience. 
we see in this verse how there is truth in that definition. The fear of the Lord does lead to obedience. But there is more here than mere reverence. The dictionary defines reverence as a feeling of profound awe and respect, often love. Fear is a feeling of agitation or anxiety caused by the presence or imminence of danger. And that idea of fear and presence is one that is significant because God is not safe. Isaiah chapter 6 describes the appropriate response to God's presence as Isaiah comes before the Lord and says, Woe is me, I am undone, I have come apart, I have become disintegrated, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in a country among a people of unclean lips. This reality is what leads to repentance. At the bottom of the fear of the Lord is the continuing realization of of our being in the presence of God. Our awe and our respect and our love of God that is a part of that reverence and fear of God is brought about by a continuing understanding of His presence. It is the happiness here, therefore, a reward for our obedience. After all, blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. Many commentators want to argue that the psalmist makes this correlation, but I disagree. Certainly, obedience flows as the natural response to being in that presence of God. However, to assert that blessing is earned as a consequence of obedience eviscerates the doctrine of grace revealed in Christ Jesus. It is not our obedience that makes us worthy of happiness. Our happiness comes by the free grace of God, earned by our Savior and given to us by faith alone. And the the psalmist continues by enumerating the first sign of happiness in verse 2. Thou shalt eat of the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Happiness and well-being seem strictly tied to the ability to eat the labor of your hands. This is the exact opposite of the futility that other wisdom writers note in their writings, especially as we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, where Solomon writes, and yes, it's Solomon, writes, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men, a man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wetheth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. Yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof. But a stranger eateth it. This is vanity and an evil disease. Here is the description that Solomon gives us. A man who is able to labor and to acquire wealth and to have satisfied every desire he might have. And yet God has not given him the ability to eat it, to enjoy it. The man under the sun who does not live in the continuing realization of the presence of God toils in vain, for though he may eat his bread, he does so without enjoyment. Sure, he may think that he enjoys life, but he has merely conditioned himself to imagine that the provender that he devours tastes like an exquisite banquet instead of the dried oats that it really is. He has conditioned himself to think that he is eating well when he is eating poorly. This is the futility of the unregenerate man. And while the unregenerate man dwells in this reality, the psalmist here is saying that even though we as God's people may be eating little, we may enjoy it greatly because God has given it to us. 
This is the quandary that faces the psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73 as he goes to the wicked and sees them. And from the outside, under the sun, it looks like they have everything. They have contentment. They are at peace. Even in their death, they seem to have no pains. And he mourns there in verses 7, 13 and 14. Yea, verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain. I have washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. He psalmist says, I have, I have conducted myself in righteousness for nothing. I have pursued holiness. I have lived into the fear of the Lord, and it has gotten me nothing. Do you hear that psalmist in your heart? You hear in your own soul the same kind of complaint that the psalmist in Psalm 73 brings up. I do. This is why the Psalms are so critical for us, because we often feel this way. We often think this way. The Psalms help us to process our feelings. They distinguish between what are true feelings, what are false feelings, what are feelings uh, generated by a false understanding of reality, and what are, what are true feelings are to be like. For we often mistake the one for the other. Instead of feeling like the psalmist in Psalm 73, we ought to recognize the truth of Psalm 128. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, that we are able to eat of the labor and to be happy because of what God has given to his people. Not only should we enjoy the fruits of our labor, but we also should enjoy the fruits of our home. From this general description to the Pacific, the psalmist moves to the enjoyment that God gives his people in their family life. The psalmist described the enjoyment that God provides in labor, which includes all the other events of his life as well. But now he moves into the arena of family. And he focuses on two elements of family life, marriage and children. The psalmist describes the intoxicating wife and the enriching children. Now, you probably think I have an unreasonable expectation of marriage uh, never having entered into the state. Well, that's a valid criticism, I guess. But let me demonstrate what Scripture says about the wife as it's reflected in this psalm. Verse 3, Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house. Some, even, uh, some commentators, even in the modern age, have limited the image here of a wife who provides plenty of offspring, but I think this is a gross corruption of what this text says. First, the gift of the woman at the beginning had nothing to do with her ability to produce children. God initiated the cre- creation of the woman to provide the man with companionship. And no one says it better than Derek Kidner in his commentary on Genesis, who writes, So the woman is presented wholly as the partner and counterpart to the man. Nothing is yet said of her as childbearer. She is valued for herself alone. So uh, this must be understood under the background of the the creation of marriage. Secondly, the image of the ideal woman in other uh, wisdom literature, specifically Psalm 31, does not mention her ability to produce children and only mentions them once, saying that her children shall arise and call her blessed. In contrast, the Bible is replete with examples of the wife being praised for her own character and goodness. 
And here the psalmist is using similes drawn from agriculture. He does not use staple crops for the basis of these similes, but luxury crops. He does not compare wife and children to wheat or corn, the basics of life, but to grapes and olives. And his choices, I submit to you, are not arbitrary, but deliberate. Grapes were chiefly used to produce wine. And wine becomes synonymous in the Bible with either judgment or celebration. Judgment when the grapes are crushed and resemble blood. Probably not uh, the analogy and the message we're supposed to get in this, in this psalm. So clearly, the latter is in view, the idea of celebration. That the wife, like wine, brings joy and celebration to the home, to the man who fears the Lord. Note also the placement of the metaphorical wine by the sides of the house. It could be translated also within thy house. In larger homes where there was an atrium, vines might be grown within the house. She is at least grasping on to the house, close to the house, united to the house. In contrast, in contrast to the profligate woman whose feet never stay at home, as we read in Psalm uh, Proverbs 7, she is loud and stubborn, her feet abide not in her house. Now she is without, now in the street, and lieth in wait at every corner. This wife, described in Psalm 128, exemplifies that which is seen in Proverbs 31. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. The relationship between husband and wife is such that neither need to look beyond the home to find fulfillment and joy. The psalmist then turns to the children of the family. By children like olive plants are placed around the table. It's an interesting juxtaposition. The image of children takes place around the table. While most fathers fret about how they are to provide for their families, the psalmist takes that picture and reverses it. While vines evoke images of celebration, olives evoke images of wealth. Olives were used for oil. You might remember that olive oil was one of the ways that Elisha provided for the widow and her family in the famine. And so there's a sense of abundance, of, of richness here. These two ideas are united in Psalm 104, verse 15, and wine that maketh glad the heart of man and oil to make his face shine. And here's the image of the man that fears the Lord. He is happy and he is prosperous. Oil and wine were not commodities of the poor, but of the rich. The children stand around the table as an image of how wealthy the man is. Verse 4, Behold, that thus shall, be, shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. Just in case we forgot what this is all about, the psalmist reminds us of the point. In a world where the family is under constant bombardment, where marriage and children are relegated by our society to the province of what they think of as the uneducated and the underachiever, the Bible speaks of the riches of family. That that which brings celebration and wealth is not measured by that which is in your bank account, but by that which is around your table. 
Husbands and wives, do you see your spouse as the psalmist does? Parents, do you see your children as enriching and not impoverishing? I often know how parents tend to see their children as a burden more than a blessing. Being a child once myself, I often think that rightly my parents may have seen me that way, especially in my teenage years. But the home is the foundation of the happiness that God gives the man who fears the Lord. And it is right for us, especially in a countercultural way, as society has been diminishing and uh, uh, talking down about uh, the home, about marriage and children, to recapture what the Bible says. That marriage and children are celebration and riches. They are that which God has given those who fear him to bring them joy. God gives his children the ability to enjoy the fruits of their labor and the fruits of their home, but also intends for this enjoyment to last throughout their lives. Psalmist concludes the psalm with a benediction. He extends the felicity of labor and home to its furthest extent. These blessings continue every day of our lives. They are everlasting to the city of God. The psalmist switches scenes from the one who fears the Lord to the city of God. Verse 5, The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Though this scene changed, the people addressed are the same. The blessing of the Lord proceeds out of the place where he has chosen to put his name. The good of the city of God is synonymous with the good of the people of God. That is the good of those who fear the Lord. Their good endures throughout their days. You can understand how this uh, connection fits together as uh, As we have taken our look, as we go through these psalms, you begin in the far countries in Psalm 120. You go through the the mountains toward Jerusalem in Psalm 121. You arrive in Jerusalem in Psalm 122. And these uh, other psalms are uh, probably sung in expectation or as they uh, live or they dwell and celebrate uh, whatever uh, festival they are engaging in in Jerusalem. Here they are in Jerusalem, and they're understanding that the Lord's blessing comes out of Jerusalem because that's where his presence is known in the tabernacle and the temple. And they'll eventually go home in Psalm 134. And so every day that they are in Jerusalem represents every day of their life before the presence of God and the fear of God as he continues to bless. The promises of the first four verses of God's blessing of his people do not ebb and flow but endure. Whether God's people recognize them or not. Our understanding of God's riches and the manner in which He bestows them may change, but God is always doing good and giving good gifts to His people. This blessing not only persists in life, but follows the progeny that follow after God's people. God deals in families, and His promises toward the children of those who fear Him. Possess, persist, verse 6. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children and peace upon Israel. Here we see an extension of what the promise was there in verse 3. 
children like olive plants around the table, children's children, to the third and the fourth generation, we may say, as, as it appears in other places in Scripture. The peace that is given to the family of God. This psalm ends with the benediction on God's people, peace upon Israel broadening out from Jerusalem, or maybe uh, considering that in Jerusalem most of Israel is there. It calls to mind the benediction of Galatians 6.16. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. All these blessings come upon you if you fear the Lord. If you do not fear Him, if you do not acknowledge His presence, You live in misery. Now you may not comprehend this fact, but indeed, those who are outside of God through Christ are miserable. You may have grown so accustomed to that misery that you cannot fathom a life without it. But God offers you life, a life of happiness. What does it mean to fear the Lord? What is it, does it mean to live in the continuing realization of God's presence? It means that first you must understand your position before God. As you stand in His presence before the Holy Lord, you immediately become aware of your sin. You immediately become aware that you are a sinner and against God and deserve His judgment upon you. And that judgment is severe. It is an eternal existence in hell, a place of torment. Standing in the presence of God does not necessarily leave you as a mere sinner, but shows you the Savior. The God before whom you stand condescended to come to earth to live the life you should have lived. He died bearing the torment that ought to have been yours. The God before whom you stand has chosen to offer to exchange his life and death for yours. And it is the only way that you can stand before him without receiving immediate condemnation. Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Will you repent of carelessness and fear the Lord? Standing before the Lord involves living each day in his presence. It is what it means to walk in his way. For how can one do anything other when he lives in the constant reminder of God's presence? Jerry Bridges notes that none of us sin in the conscious presence of God. In order for us to sin, we must deny that presence. We must ignore that presence. We must have some uh, brokenness in our mind to think that God does not see. The question for each of us today is whether we will live in the presence of God in the fear of the Lord or not. I mentioned earlier Psalm 73. A psalmist, when he is confronted with the apparent blessedness of the unbeliever, reaches a kind of breaking point, thinking that he has deceived himself, that he has gone and pursued righteousness for nothing. Then he goes to the place where these pilgrims went, 
to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the house of God, and there he recognizes their end. And he ends in a very different place than that early statement where he says, I have washed my hands in vanity. Instead, he recognizes what the fear of the Lord gives him. He recognizes what it means to be thankful. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I, that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The benediction reminds us of the ultimate giver. That everything that is blessed comes from the Lord. It also reminds us that we cannot enjoy life's blessings outside of our recognition of Him as the giver. That we cannot enjoy life's blessings outside thanksgiving, outside enjoying them in the presence of God. There is a reason why God has His people always come back to observe the festival at the place where His presence is known. The peace offering is to be eaten in the presence of God. Because God is saying to his people, signaling to them, expressing to them, revealing to them in any way possible that that which they are enjoying is from his gift. I don't think we fall into ingratitude because of a low view of the things we have received. Some people have suggested that we are ungrateful for things we do not work for. And I certainly see that uh, truth being revealed. But I don't think that's the reason that we are ungrateful before God. I think the corrective for thanklessness is not that we need to value his gifts more, but that we need to see the love of the giver to see the love of God. It's not that we need to think better of our wife and our children, although that probably ought to be something that we pursue. It's not that we should uh, be more diligent in our labor, although partly may, we may need to be that as well. But ultimately, we need to recognize that the Lord is the one that is blessing that behind the wife and children and the food that we eat is the great giver God who gives every gift to his people. How will you give thanks for this evening's worship service? When you give thanks for what God has given you today in your worship, how will you develop gratitude in your heart? Let me encourage you, don't, think, don't try to think more of the sermon. Don't try to say, that was a great sermon. That's not the way to do it. It is to say, how good is our God to enable us to gather together as his people? How good is our God to be present with us in worship? Our attention is always going to be dysfunctional because we're always going to want to look at the gift rather than the giver. Instead, remember the love of the Lord who has brought you to this place. Let's pray together.
We thank you, O Lord, not only for the gifts of work and home and fruit, but also for the ability that you have given to us to enjoy them. We have not one of your gifts, but for the great love that you have set upon us from before the foundation of the world. And so we thank you. May the enjoyment of all of our blessings move us to thanksgiving, as in them we see your love evidenced in our lives. Amen.